Welcome to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we encourage you to think through things theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined by our resident theological thinker, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I don't know how to introduce you. You're just resident theological thinker. I thought about maybe I should change up what I call you every week. Theologian in training, theologian maybe. In training. I don't know. I, I I don't feel like I'm a theologian yet, but I'm trying to be. Fair enough. So we're we're taking this journey together, all of us, uh, learning how to become our own. Uh, theologian, which uh, I, I think today's a good topic for that, uh, especially given what's going on in the culture, and we'll uh, we'll get into all that stuff. I am sure that if people are seeing us post this on social media, that they've seen everything else being posted to the social media. There was uh, a, a string George George Floyd being the most recent of uh, a few. Mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, being others in in very recent, I think it was all in a month span uh, of unjustified killings of unarmed uh, black men and and women in the case of Breonna Taylor, uh, and one of the one of the common critiques that comes up with with times like this has also come up from Christians, uh, and it's once again kind of I mean as as we fight over. Our, our various lens and perspectives of this is what's going on, no, this is what's going on, no, this is really what's going on. Uh, we felt it was good to talk about theology of life. Here, here's, the, here's the comment that keeps coming up. Many people say that Christians claim, uh, on one hand, to be pro-life. We typically think about that in terms of abortion, but that we don't always stand by that in all situations. Uh, previously, it was uh, maybe around adoption or when the immigration stuff was, uh, the, the flames of that were being talked about all the time. Uh, they would say, you're, you're pro-life for the unborn, but not for those that are actually born. Uh, and now that same thing is coming up with, we saw it with coronavirus and now with uh, people in uh, of a different race in, in these race relations discussions. Uh, and so to lead this off, I want to ask you, do you think it's a fair critique uh, that we're pro-life, but we're not consistent in that, that being pro-life? What do you think about that? Well, um, unfortunately, I, I do think that it's a pretty fair critique. I think that uh, there are many Christians who, on the one hand, do claim to be pro-life and are very quick to speak out and to speak up about things like abortion, which I think is a very good thing, a thing that we as Christians do need to speak out against. Uh, But I know a a lot of Christians who are very quick to speak out against that. But on the, the same hand, they'll, when you've got some kind of, uh, unjustified killing of an unarmed black man that we've, or, or woman, like what we've seen over the past uh, several weeks, several months, and what has been brought to light over the past several years, uh, we'll try to rationalize that. and Or maybe we say that, yeah, that was wrong, but we try to downplay its significance, which we would never do with something like abortion or uh, with the uh, coronavirus. Uh, a lot of people... Uh, 
uh, who have a lot of Christians who have unfortunately at least come off as if they care more about personal freedoms or about money or things like that uh, than they or their personal opinions than they do about lives of other people. And I think you, I, I think we see that in a lot of different situations, not just some of these unjustified killings or coronavirus that have happened now, uh, but you mentioned immigration issues, uh, which keep are always going to continue to come up. Right. Um, things like a war or murder or self-defense or, or anything like that. We seem to have uh, a lot of Christians have different views of life in those different situations. And um, I, I think that the main reason is because most Christians don't have a solid theology of life, a, a theology of, of life, to guide and be the foundation of our thinking in all of these different areas that have to do with life, whether it be in race, uh, racist killings or with the coronavirus or immigration or war or self-defense or the death penalty or whatever it may be. Uh, we need a solid theology of life to guide our thinking in all of these different areas that have to do with human life. Now, we all these different situations we do have to take individually when we think about how should a Christian think or respond, uh, what should they believe in these different areas, because they all have different things that play a role in us trying to, to figure out how to respond. But all of that, in my opinion, needs to be built on a solid foundation of what Scripture teaches us about human life. I think that has to be the starting point with any of these conversations that have to do with other human beings' life, I think we need to have a solid foundational theology of what Scripture teaches about life that's true. Uh, if the individual that we're talking about is the best human being to ever live, or if the individual is the worst possible person that we could ever imagine. Uh, because I know sometimes, especially with uh, some of these killings of uh, unarmed black men and women, uh, even if we say that it was wrong what happened, we will uh, sometimes we'll try to downplay what happened or try to validate what happened because of who the person was, uh, because of maybe what they were doing prior or maybe what the way that they tend to, to live their life, some things that they've done in the past or or things like right. that where we wouldn't, if I'm just going to be honest, we probably wouldn't try to minimalize that event if it was a person who wasn't or hadn't engaged in those things. And so it's it's inconsistent. And I, I think we've got to have a theology of life that's true regardless of who the person is, a theology of life that's true regardless of what other evils are happening in the world. Uh, because I know another way that we try to minimalize some of these killings is to say, well, what about, and then we list off other evils that are happening in our world. And a prime one that I see a lot of the time is, well, what about abortion? That's wrong too. Why aren't we speaking out against that? Um, and I think it's a good thing on the one hand to bring to light all of these other evils that exist in the world. Yeah. But when we understand what scripture teaches us about the importance of human life, it's important for us to stand up for life, not just regardless of the situation, whether it's killing or coronavirus or immigration or war or whatever it may be, standing for human life. Not only do we need to stand for life regardless of whose life that it is, but it also calls us to stand for life regardless of what other evils are happening in 
the world, we're still called to stand for life. And I know one thing that I've said to several people recently is that we also have to start somewhere. You can't solve all the evils in the world at one time. And so we can sit back and point out all the evils, but that doesn't actually fix the problem. We have to start somewhere and hopefully fix that problem, and then we can move on to other problems because all the different evils are going to require their own unique solution as well. And so we have to start somewhere. Um, But for me, the big thing is, are, are we standing for life? regardless of the situation, regardless of what else is going on, regardless of the the person, uh, are we standing for life based upon the way that Scripture teaches us to think about life? Yeah, and uh, I I do want to say this before we get rolling. I know we have a few verses uh, that we're going to look at and explore here with this, but uh, what you said to, uh, regardless of the person's character, because when we're talking about a theology of life, we're looking at how does God view life and God the way God views it is the way we need to view it and that isn't going to change based on the life itself it is just our standard for this is what it looks like and then we go from there we starting with the word working out uh, into all these various applications whether they be immigration war race abortion etc and all that I, I do want to say, Regardless, uh, I mean, some of the comments made uh, that you just made uh, may cause some people to go, well, hold on and get defensive. I want to encourage all of you listening, just hear us through to the end. uh, And then if you're mad at us, uh, we'll put out Spencer's personal email. You can send all the all the hate his way. (laughs) If that works for you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Oh, you know, I. Something that you said that I think is uh, um, reminded me of a passage of when when Paul in Romans says that Christ died uh, for the ungodly, that even right. while we were still sinners, right. you know, Christ died for us. Th- that's one example of how the way that God views life, which is what we're going to go on to, to talk about, doesn't change with the the individual. The idea of the ungodly is to say that we are as far away from God as we possibly could, and yet God still cares about us enough to die for us. I mean, that that's, right. you, you couldn't get further away. And that's, I think, the point that Paul was trying to make by using that kind of language. And so the way God views life doesn't change whether it's Adam pre-Genesis 3, uh, perfect humanity, or if it's ungodly humanity, uh, that is anti-everything that God stands for, uh, God still has the same view, has the same love for human life, and, you know, uh, so should we. Like I said, it, it may carry itself out different in different situations based on other things that we would have to talk about, but it's got to be built upon that one foundation. Yeah, got to have a a standard, uh, a standard outside of ourselves, and then we work from there. So let's, let's talk about that then. How do we, how do we think about life theologically? How does God view life? And then where do we, where do we go with that uh, personally? Well, the, the place that I would start is probably the place that anybody would start. 
is probably the place that you assume that I will uh, be starting, and that is with the creation. Genesis chapter 1, uh, the fact that all humanity is created in the image of God, and I think that's the place we have to start. Yep. I think all, I think the way that God views life, the way that we need to be thinking about life, the way Scripture teaches about lot teaches us about human life, is all rooted in the way we were created and the fact that we were created to bear the image of God. So a passage that probably all of us are familiar with, Genesis one twenty seven, uh, which says, "So God created man in His own image." In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Scripture begins by teaching us that all human beings are made in the image of God. Yeah. And here's what I believe that that means. I think we need to understand the idea of the image of God within the greater context of the ancient Near East. And what the ancient Near East is, is that is the culture that the people of Israel lived in. Uh, that's the culture in which the... Um, works of our Old Testament were produced in, and it's the culture in which the readers of the, uh, the original readers and the original audience of the Old Testament lived in. And so in the same way that we understand the importance of understanding Greco-Roman culture in trying to understand the New Testament, because the time period in which the New Testament was written, uh, in which produced the New Testament, the culture in which the original audience of the works of the New Testament was in, was in a Greek and Roman culture. And so we understand that the better we understand Greek and Roman culture, the better we can understand some of the things that we find, some of the language that's used in the New Testament, because it's built upon what they experienced in that culture. And the same is true with the Old Testament. It's just a different culture. It's what's called the ancient Near East. Uh, and what's interesting is that in the ancient Near East, kings were understood as bearing the image of God. But only kings were understood as image bearers of God. And the reason that uh, people said that kings bore the image of God was because kings were seen as the earthly royal representatives of the gods. Kings were doing the work of the gods on earth. Uh, this was where they received their divine right to rule and their power as king was that they were image bearers of God, of, of the gods, working on earth on behalf of the gods. That's where they got their right to be kings. But the interesting thing about the Genesis account of creation is that Genesis democratizes this concept by saying that it's not just kings who bear the image of God, it's not even just men who bear the image of God, but that all people, both Men and women are image bearers of God. In other words, all people are to be understood as royal representatives of hmm. God on earth. Uh, all people are to be understood as workers of God on earth. And it, I think it's also important and interesting to note that in the ancient Near East, the representative of a king stood in the place of the king. And so what you did to the king's representatives, you were in essence doing to the king himself. And so if a king sent one of his representatives to another kingdom, let's say, and the, the people of that kingdom or that other king mistreated the representative, uh, abused or offended the representative, or maybe even killed the representative, it was as if the king was doing that to the very king who sent the representative. That the king who sent the representative was being... Um, 
viewed in a negative light, that he was being harmed, that he was being killed because of the way that his representative was treated. And so that's how wars would start, right? A king sends a representative, he's mistreated, the king takes that personally because it's as if those things are being done to him, and then you go to war with another kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so that being true and that being the understanding of royal representatives in the ancient Near East, the same would be true as hum for human beings who are God's royal representatives, that we as human beings who stand in the place of God on earth, who are workers of God on earth, that what you do to one of God's representatives, in other words, what you do to any human being, you are doing to God himself. And I don't know about anybody else, but that's a really humbling thing for me to think about, that the way that I treat other people who are made in God's image, I am in essence doing those things to God himself. And so when we think about life, I mean, how dare we haphazardly take life or haphazardly speak about or think about or treat other people's lives, treat the lives of representatives of the God who willingly gave up his life for us. And this might sound harsh, but I believe that when we do this, that we might as well be a part of that crowd that was crying, crucify him. Hmm. Because we are doing those things to God himself. We think, I would never be a part of the crowd that tried to kill and did kill Jesus. And my response would be, whenever you fail to stand up for a representative of God's life, whenever you fail to stand up for the life of a human being made in God's image, whenever you are haphazard towards the taking of the life of someone made in the image of God, you might as well be a part of that crowd because you're doing the very thing to God himself. We say we'd never be a part of the crowd, but then the way that we treat God's image bearers says something different. Yeah. And so I think we have to start by remembering how we treat other people is a reflection of how we're treating God. Well, and uh, Matthew 25 came to mind as you were going through all that, uh, that very end of his discussions on uh, the, the judgment uh, and talking about, you know, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you, well, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers? There's, there's this reminder of, listen, how you're treating one another is reflective on how you're treating me uh, as, as the Son of God. And that's not the only place that comes to mind, uh, but I'm sure we we have several more passages that we're going to to talk about. But certainly, as you said at the beginning, Genesis is I mean Genesis is where we start. Genesis is where the book starts. Genesis is where uh, we see this person of God uh, and his interaction with uh, with the world. Uh, it's 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 his. It's his, and so we're we're establishing from the beginning. Uh, this is how he sees things, and this uh, everybody being made in the image of God, representations uh, to some degree of who God is, uh, and the way we treat each other, uh, especially in light of the culture. Uh, and thanks for for bringing that out. Uh, we do give that treatment to the New Testament all the time. We talk about 
the the games that Paul references in Corinthians, well, you know, it had to do with what was going on in, in uh, that culture in the New Testament, the Greek culture. We do that all the time. We don't really think about it in an Old Testament way. Uh, and so bringing that out, I think, is very important for us uh, to understand what's going on. Uh, and in seeing that how you treat the representative is how you're treating the uh, the God or the gods uh, themselves. All right, um, sticking in Genesis, where are we going from here? Yeah, the to me, the second most important passage when we're thinking about life is actually Genesis chapter, the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 9, which may be a place that many of us wouldn't think to go. It may be a passage some of us aren't actually that familiar with, um, but I, I think there's a very important principle that's laid out here. So uh, the beginning of Genesis 9, we're after the flood, and uh, God is interacting with Noah here. And I just want to read the, the first seven verses for us. It says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven, heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Which is actually th this job that God gives here to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and to really have dominion over his creation goes back to the command that God gives humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Yeah. Uh, right after it says that God created them in their image, he gives them this job. And to me, that supports understanding the image as being these royal representatives of God, being these royal representatives of the true king, because the idea of having dominion over God's creation is a royal role. I mean, God's creation is like God's kingdom, that as king, he has dominion and rule over. But what job does he give to his representatives in Genesis chapter 1? And what job does he give to his representatives here in Genesis chapter 9? It's to exercise that rule, that dominion of God within his kingdom, to be his worker, to be his representative here on earth by having dominion and caring for his kingdom, in essence. And so we get a repeat of that. Uh, here in Genesis chapter 9, but then it continues. Uh, verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So there's just a, a few things real quick that I want to draw our attention to from this passage. And the first is that what, what we see God do here is first he grants human beings, Noah and his family, the right to eat or the right to kill in order to eat both plants and animals for their food and for their sustenance. We see God give them that right here. He says that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Yep. But we also see illustrated in this passage the severity of taking the life of an image bearer of God. 
God says that he will require a reckoning for everyone and everything that takes the life of one of his image bearers, that takes the life of a human being. And one of the most interesting and fascinating things about this passage to me is that God says he will even require a reckoning from beasts, from animals who take the lives of a human being. Now, what that means, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, that would be a conversa- an interesting conversation maybe for another time. But what we see there is how important God takes his, the life of his image bearers, that whether it be man or beast, if anyone takes the life of one of his image bearers, he's going to require a reckoning. And God says that the reckoning is a life for a life. Mm-hmm. Again, there's a lot more that could be said about that. But the point that I want to make is how uh, severe um, God takes it when anyone or anything takes the life of someone who bears his image. Because again, to do that is an attack on God himself, is an attack on the king whom human beings represent. Mm. And so that connects us back to what we talked about in Genesis chapter 1. We can understand why God takes it as such a big deal when we understand what it means to be created in his image. And I think this passage illustrates that. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I, you, you mentioned there's a bunch of other places this can go. And before we, I know you got one more here uh, uh, yep. from this passage. Uh, but you you think about even prior to this, uh, Cain and Abel and God saying, you know, mm-hmm. where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Is the discussion there? And and he says, the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground to me. And so there's this there's this emphasis on blood placed early. Uh, in the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. and it goes through Leviticus, and specifically uh, uh, here, and you mentioned it a bit, you're going to mention it a little bit here in a second, about uh, blood in the food. Uh, it's even mentioned in Acts 15. Like, there's there's so much of this that is just, if, if you look for life and blood throughout the Bible and circle those words, you're going to end up with a very, uh, very colored-in Bible, uh, because of how often this occurs, because as you as you've said and are are defending here, it's so 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 important because of what it what it means to God uh, when a life is created and when a life is taken away from somebody else. Uh, so God grants human beings the right to eat or kill both plants and animals, and we see how severe it is to take the life of an image bearer of God. Uh, what's what's number three here? Yeah, uh, and just to kind of bring that all together, so I I think that what that says, and so what this passage teaches is that we see that uh, all life, whether it be plants or animals or human beings, all three are mentioned in this passage, that all life is under God's control because God creates all life. God is the ultimate life giver, and so God is the only one who can take life because God is the one who gave life life in the first place. It doesn't matter if it's plants or animals or human beings. God is the giver of life, and so he's the only one who can take Hmm. life. But like with anything, God has the ability to give human beings, who are God's representatives, who are God's workers on earth as image bearers of God, God has the right and the ability to give human beings certain rights that would normally only be reserved to God. 
And I think what we see in the case of this passage is that God gives the right to take life to human beings regarding plants and animals for the purpose of food. God's one stipulation here is do not eat animals with their blood, with their life source still in them. But God, the life giver, has given to his image bearers the ability to take the life of plants and animals for the purpose of food. Um, and we we may see here a little bit of the, the idea of, we also see, we well, we do see here the idea of God giving certain abilities for human beings taking other human beings' life. And I think in this context, we see that played out in the law, you know, so yeah. punishment for killing another human being, how are they to handle that, uh, things like that. And so that's a discussion, that's kind of a death penalty discussion, which is for another time. But what I want us to see from these two passages is first the importance that God places on human life. That because human beings bear God's image, the way we treat human beings, we are treating God. And so when we are cavalier towards life in any way, we are cavalier towards God's life, towards Jesus' life. I think that's maybe the best way to see it. We put ourselves in that crowd crying, crucify him. But I think we also need to understand that God is the ultimate giver of life and God's the one who has is the only one who has the ability to take life. Now, with certain things like plants and animals, maybe in certain situations, God can give a right reserved to him, to human beings. That's a totally different discussion, but life is reserved in the hands of God. And so what I want to say in that regard, in understanding life in that way, at least for me, I always want to be one who stands for life because it seems to me that it's that important to God and that God is one who always stands for life, that Jesus in his ministry in the incarnation, when we human beings got to see and walk with God, Jesus stood for life because it's that important. And so I think in all situations, we need to be people that have a bend towards standing for life, that if all else fails, I'm going to stand on the side of life. And that's regardless of whose life it is, that's regardless of what situation it may be, it's regardless of its, if it's a black life, a white life, a police life, a criminal's life, it doesn't matter. I'm going to stand on the side of life because God puts so much value on that life. And that's my stance in all situations. First and foremost is I'm going to stand on the side of life. You know, we can tease out on, in some of these different areas uh, how exactly that plays sure. out. But regardless of what it is, whether, like I said, whether it's the killing of unarmed black men, I'm going to I'm going to side. If we're talking about immigration. I'm going to stand on the side of life. If we're talking about abortion, I'm going to stand on the side of of life at all costs because of the value that God places on life. And I think we need to place the same kind of value on life. Agreed. Um, and, and as you said, there's there's a lot we could say on this. And I know we'll revisit uh, some of these specifics as well uh, that we that, that have been brought up so far. Um, but I want to pivot a little bit for the for the sake of time and uh, bring this to uh, a New Testament look uh, as well as 
kind of the, this application for us as we as we leave this uh, episode and go off out into the world and interact, especially when being very directly confronted right now with uh, reality and seeing mm-hmm. lives being taken. Uh, so what uh, what specific life problems regarding race uh, you know, are we currently dealing with? Have we seen these before? Are there places in the New Testament, perhaps, uh, where uh, we see this kind of maybe cavalier attitude towards life? Uh, where would those be? Right. So, you know, what, what we're dealing with in our world right now, most directly regarding life, has to do with ideas of racism and ideas of injustice and how those are, are connected to one another. And if, if, if you don't think scripture addresses racism and injustice, then we're reading different Bibles because it's, it's all over the place. Constant. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me is when you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, most of the time we think that their biggest complaint against God's people was that they worshiped idols. I actually think that's the second biggest complaint when you actually read the prophets. I think the prophets' biggest complaint about God's people was that they failed to show justice, mm. that they oppressed other people. Uh, Isaiah actually specifically talks about how Israel set up um, systems, institutions within Israel that oppressed people, that oppressed the poor, that oppressed the outcasts, that oppressed women and orphans and things like that. And so you want to talk about injustice, you want to talk about systemic problems, systemic racism, systemic injustice, the Bible deals with that. That was God's biggest complaint, in my opinion, through the prophets to his people was that they were putting these systems in place. They were treating other people like that. And the problem doesn't go away in the New Testament. It's something that in the New Testament we see to address too. Um, I I real quickly just want to reference this passage in Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 through 14, where Paul says that when Cephas, or when Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says that I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, Hmm. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Jews. The problem that Peter had here uh, was a problem of racism. We we see here the New Testament directly dealing and addressing the sin of racism. Peter, a Jew, treated Gentiles, people of a different race, different than he did people of his own race, his fellow Jews. Specifically, Paul says that he was associating with Gentiles— but that when other Jews came by, he pulled back and didn't want to associate with the Gentiles anymore, only wanted to associate with the Jews. And the most important thing in this passage to me is that Paul says, when I saw that Peter's actions were not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul says that in Peter treating different races differently, of pulling back and not wanting to be with the Gentiles that those actions are directly antithetical to the truth that's found in the gospel, the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. 
how he brings us all together. And so Paul says that he was forced to confront Peter for acting that way, for treating different races uh, differently. And we have to realize that one of the biggest problems in the early church was a form of racism, yep. that Jews believed that they were superior to Gentiles, both ethnically and religiously, uh, since in Judaism the two were connected. Uh, Jews believed that they were, a lot of Jews and Jewish Christians believed that they were closer to God as Jews rather than being Gentiles, uh, that God looked on them in a higher standard than God looked on other people. And so that's where you get the problem of Christian uh, uh, Jew of Jewish Christians wanting Gentile Christians to become Jews before they became Christians. They believed that through their ethnicity, through the Jews, was the only way to truly access God. And that was one of the biggest problems in the first century was this problem of the way that Jews viewed Gentiles. And so we see this problem dealt with in almost every single one of Paul's letters. Paul talks about how there's, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor free, there's neither, um, there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul makes that point in one way or another in just about all of his letters to say, no, the Jews are not better than the Gentiles. No, you don't have to become a Jew to access God. We have all been brought together as one in the new family of God. We've all been brought together as one in the church, and we need to stop dividing based upon race. Paul deals with that in almost every one of his letters. Uh, we see it, I believe, behind the way that certain stories are told in the Gospels and why certain stories are included in the Gospels. Uh, Luke's parable of the Good Samaritan, I think, is an example of, of mm -hmm. that. Why is Luke including that for the church community that he's writing to, uh, partly, I believe, to deal with problems like this that may have been happening in his church. And so we really see it all throughout the New Testament, dealing with this problem of the way Jews viewed Gentiles and saying that that's not appropriate. Uh, specifically in Galatians, the problem that Peter had was not only that he was denying the oneness of the body of Christ, like I said, that we no longer have uh, these things that divide us, um, in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how we are all one in the body of Christ. So not only was Peter denying the oneness by making a distinction based upon race, but he was denying the image-bearing characteristic that all human beings have, that all human beings, regardless of race, bear the image of God, are representatives of God, and must be treated as such. And so in our world today, where we deal with problems of uh, racism, uh, problems of racial division. Um, I, I think what the gospel calls us to do is first always to be people who stand on the side of life because God elevates life. I think it calls us to ask ourselves, how are we treating other people with the realization that the way we treat other people is the way we are treating God? And then I, call, I think it calls us to realize that we must be people who stand against injustice that we are people who stand against racism because Scripture directly addresses and stands opposed to those as well. And if we're going to be God's people who proclaim the good news, the gospel, as found in Scripture, we have to be people who stand up against these sins. And so that, to me, that that's the takeaway in the midst of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, as, as image bearers of God and as people who wear the name of Christ— 
what we do and say and share and post is going to be the it's going to be the picture that people see of the gospel and we've got to be very careful that we aren't walking out of step with the truth of the gospel spencer thank you very much man enjoyed enjoyed the discussion uh, i hope that those of you listening uh, were encouraged by this uh, challenged by this and i hope that uh, this discussion on a theology of life uh, is one that we strongly take into consideration as we go moving forward these kind of conversations are going to continue to happen in our culture and what christians show could help to solve the problem a little bit at, at a time or uh, make the problem just a little bit more worse so uh, if you have any comments questions suggestions for topics or if you want to uh, maybe complain a little bit to us we'll field those too you can send those to us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. We want all your feedback, whether good, bad, or neutral. And let us know what you want us to talk about when it comes to theology. This has been Thinking Theologically. We'll see you next time.